look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. A little bit different show today as we head down the home stretch of this National Football League season. It's just really not your typical Peter King podcast, but we'll see how it goes. So we're going to have three guests today. Muhammad Masakwa, the former Cleveland Browns wide receiver whose career was forever changed by a hit from James Harrison and who now speaks motivationally to organizations and to companies as he did this week with NBC about change in life and how it should be welcomed and not shunned. Then we'll speak in our five minutes with a writer segment to Jenny Varentis, my former colleague at Sports Illustrated, who has an excellent Sports Person of the Year cover story in the magazine about Megan Rapino, who is this year's SI Sports Person of the Year. I really, really enjoyed the story and wanted to get Jenny back on. And then we're going to play a conversation I did a couple of months ago in California with Kevin Euclid, who is a obviously a former Major League Baseball player who now owns and runs his own brewery in California. And we're going to talk about beer and also his famous brother-in-law, Tom Brady. So we'll get to all those in a moment. But first, in the news this week in the NFL is the information that the NFL is now investigating a story of the New England Patriots sort of hiding in plain sight, filming the sidelines at a Cincinnati Bengals-Cleveland Browns game, filming the Bengals sideline uh, from the press box, which is totally illegal uh, in the NFL, for what the Patriots say is a feature story on an advanced scout at their game. And obviously, if this had been any one of the other 31, any of the other 31 teams in the league, no one would really be taking much notice of this at all. Or at least there wouldn't be the mania around it that there seems to be. But first, let me explain how the Patriots, what exactly happened here, according to the Patriots. They have done seven to this point stories about people who work in the Patriots organization for a series on their digital platforms called Do Your Job, which is the Bill Belichick mantra. Whatever it is, you just do that. Don't worry about everybody else. Just do your job. And the Patriots sought and were granted credential access for this crew that does these stories in the Cleveland Browns press box last Sunday. And a camera was left on that showed the Cincinnati Bengals sidelines, which is exactly what the the uh, Patriots advanced scout uh, was looking at, the game and the sidelines, because he's going to get a, a full report. Every team in the NFL does this. Not the video part of it, obviously, but every team in the NFL sends advanced scouts to the next game. The Patriots have acknowledged their role in this. And I'll read you two specific pertinent points uh, of this statement. Uh, the sole purpose of the filming was to provide an illustration of the advanced scout at work on the road. There was no intention of using the footage for any other purpose. They also said, we accept full responsibility for the actions of our production crew at the Browns-Bengals game. So what will come next? Uh, the NFL is going to look into this, and I only hope that instead of making this 
uh, an incredibly long and drawn out production, as many times the NFL has done when investigating stories that involve purported illicit activities. I only hope that it doesn't take a year <laughs> because this seems like a fairly open and shut case. If the Patriots, for any reason, were found to have videotaped the opposing sidelines, the NFL is going to have to sanction the Patriots. We know that, just like they would do with any one of the other 31 teams in the league. And if they find out that, that the sidelines were not videotaped and it was just videotaping other parts of this, per, this advanced scout's job, well, they're going to have to discover that. It shouldn't take very long. The one thing I fault the NFL for in the Roger Goodell era in his 13 years as commissioner is that uh, there are many times, in my opinion, that uh, he has taken these long, involved investigations and made them even longer and even more involved. I keep coming back to something that Paul Tagliabue, Goodell's predecessor, once told me about his disciplinary lean when he would look into cases. And he told me, all's well that ends. Not all's well that ends well. You just want the bad stories to disappear. You don't want them to linger. And so the NFL needs, in my opinion, to act swiftly and decisively, whatever it is, without dragging this out. So let's move on to our conversations this week. We're going to start with the former Cleveland Browns wide receiver, Muhammad Masakwa. Muhammad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? Everything is going okay. I should ask you how you're doing. I don't mean to make sort of light of this, but what an incredible life you've had in the last couple of years. I, I would, I'd first of all just love to hear what you're doing these days and then talk about a couple of incidents in your life that uh, you know have been quite significant. So the, 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 the big incident is uh, becoming an amputee uh, a few years ago. Ended up losing my left hand as a result of a ATV four-wheeling accident. And since then, uh, really just think life-changing all around altogether. But in this second phase of life, it's been uh, pretty incredible just to see the work that God's done and, and be able to move through it. And then using that big change to help companies go through change, either through speaking or consulting or workshops around just change management and, and how fast life can change and uh, the benefits of going through change at, at your pace versus allowing something else to force you to change. You were at NBC this week to talk to some people there about just that topic. What exactly is your message? So I, I think that People don't understand the concept of change. A lot of people fear change, but change is just a, a normal part of life. The degrees of change are different. And in order to really thrive through change, there's a lot of things that you have to do on the front end to prepare for it. Uh, mental health is a big part of it. A lot of people don't address that, and they're trying to make these decisions, um, and they're stressed or they're not functioning it the way that they should. A lot of people rush through change. Uh, they don't take a step back and truly understand the change that needs to be made. And people don't really bring the right relationships to change. Either people try to address it by themselves or, or, or they're using things from the past that shouldn't go in the, for the future to make change. So a combination of all those different things to, to really prepare for change. So once you're in it, you're not reacting to it. Um, you're, you're really just responding uh, in the way that you'd want to. How much of your approach to life dates to April 2017 when you had this terrible ATV accident? A portion, but uh, when you're an athlete, I think that just sports in general is so dynamic, unlike probably any other profession where there's constant change. So change is normal. I think in understanding how precious life is and how quickly it can change and how fast it can be taken away from you, if you're not intentional about it, uh, you really set yourself up for failure. So I think I'm more intentional now about embracing change and doing the things that I need to do to thrive through it. What exactly happened on that day in April 2017? So on that particular day, just think of, I'm from the South. Uh, there's a lot of land down South, so you go riding ATV with friends. And while riding the ATV, ended up flipping. 
my hand gets caught outside of it, fractures everything, crushes everything on impact. Uh, one of those situations that you really don't know that it's, it's as bad as it is until you get to a hospital and they tell you that they're going to airlift you to another hospital to uh, go do surgery. And as a result of surgery, you try to put a hand back together that eventually just dies off. Um, and over the course of several surgeries, trying to save it, trying to save it, and you wake up one day and you have a thumb and the rest of your fingers are gone. Um, and just the reality of seeing that, it, it changes you uh, literally, physically, uh, all around. It's It's got to be something that in in not just be a life change, but there has to be a mental part of it that is extraordinarily depressing for a guy who has made his living with his hands for such a big part of your life. I mean, my hands were part of changing probably the trajectory of my whole family. Uh, I'm a son of two immigrant parents, and so they immigrate over here in the early 80s. They have no idea what American football is, and that becomes the thing that allows their son to get a scholarship, be the first person in the family to graduate, allows their son to play a sport that only 1,600 men played in the world at, at a particular time for a number of years. And you have your identity that is wrapped into that, not in a negative way, but it's just a, a part of who you are. And you look down and you can't do the things that came so natural to you. And, and the rest of life is an adjustment. But at the same time, it it makes you human and humble in great ways. And you just approach life a lot different. You have compassion and empathy for people in a different way. And you're appreciative of the things that you can do because you realize you can't take anything for granted. You know, I want to just talk about one other football-related thing that has always had a big sort of imprint on my brain, at least in the last <laughs> few years. Go for and it. that is, the, that's the James Harrison hit on you. And the reason that the James Harrison hit back in 2010, for those who don't remember, this was a defining moment, I think, in the last in this century, really, in the NFL. You may not even realize it, but that and and several other hits at that time, along with the Eric LeGrand uh, paralysis in a Rutgers game versus Army uh, that season, I think it forced the NFL to realize two things. Number one, we are not being remotely responsible to the 1,600 guys who we have playing every year in the NFL if we don't draw a line in the sand and say, essentially, you cannot use your body as a guided missile to try to hit somebody. Um, I think that's number one. And number two, it's just the pragmatism of no parent is ever going to let their kid in America play football once they keep seeing hits like the one James Harrison put on you. And, uh, you know, a lot of tentacles to this story, but can you just tell me, I'm just I'm just curious, what do you remember about that day and that hit from James Harrison? So that, that hit changed a lot of my career. Um, I started getting more concussions after that, probably shortened my career, changed the way that I played and approached the game. Um, when you have something like that happen and you realize that that may happen again or just the way that your body responds after something like that. Um, I don't think that after that particular hit, I was the same type of player, especially after I started getting more concussions and the symptoms last um, longer and the effects of them just, just change the way that you approach the game. Um, and I think the beauty of sports is just watching athletes play the game at the highest levels. Um, and when that is altered or changed in a way that isn't the best for the game or the best light of the game that could probably change a person's life, um, I, I think that's when, you know, sports starts to, to lose some of its richness. And you have the question now, do you let your kid play football? And as athletes get bigger, stronger, faster, you hope that athletes are able to um, play the game in a way that, it one supports their own personal health, but it protects somebody else that's been on the same journey as them. Somebody that, you know, is a brother. We're all part of the same fraternity. 
Um, so it's something that the NFL is going to have to figure out how to keep their players safe. Um, we see former players that, you know, are, you know, either wheelchair bound or they have to wear, walk with a cane. And these are some of like the best players that have ever played the game. You don't want 15, 20 years from now, some of the best players that played in the generation I played in, or even this generation, uh, have certain disabilities that could have been avoided because eventually the game just dies out. And I think football is probably the best game in the world. You don't want to see that happen. Uh, so it's, it's a big topic. Uh, I remember my, my hit was probably one of the things that changed the way people viewed it just because it was the one that made sports illustrated. Um, and hopefully the, the equipment and hopefully the style of play just continues to get safer. So you can watch the highlight plays versus the destructive plays. This was nine years ago. I want to t- want you to tell me what exactly you remember about the play from start to finish. So I remember everything. Um, it, it was one of those. Uh, I was coming across on a on a shallow. Uh, there was a ten yard um, dig route coming behind it by the tight end, and I think uh, Timmons was the um, linebacker. He carried. James was kind of lingering, so it was one of those weird to where it was half man, half zone in a way that their linebackers played it. And when it was thrown, James Harrison was just waiting there. Um, and as I'm looking back over my left shoulder, he just teed me in my on on the right side of my head. And you know, there's probably a I don't know sixty pound different. You know, he's he's not a little guy if you've ever seen him. And at that time, you know. I don't know him personally. I, I don't know, you know, his intentions. I know that Josh Cribb, two plays or play before that, uh, had got knocked out by him, and they went to school together. So, I, you know, I don't – I couldn't imagine a Georgia guy hitting me like that. Um, but it was one of those things that, you know, you don't expect that to happen. You know, if, if you have a, a knee injury or a shoulder injury, some of those are just – parts of the games and obviously concussions happen because you're in a high collision sport but the intent is not to harm a player you, you might want to rough a player up and I don't know him personally so I can't say one way or the other but you want to leave the game as healthy as possible and you, you hope that the person that you're playing against as you compete they're competing within the confines of you know protecting the person that they're playing against. So do you actually remember him contacting you? Do you remember the hit itself? Yeah, of course. Of of course. Um And what did it what what exact was it more explosive than than any hit you had had to that point in your life? Oh, for sure. Uh for sure. Like it's um I mean it's just the NFL the people are bigger, stronger, faster. Uh it's just the reality of of the game and it just feels just imagine if you're in a you're sleeping and somebody wakes you up out of your sleep that confusion right there is it just lasts longer that they like where you're just trying to figure out okay what just happened and it's not necessarily from a pain standpoint but just cognitively you're trying to process things at the speed that you're used to and it you're just not able to until those concussion symptoms kind of um, fade away and if you continue to you know, have those type of things where, you know, some guys play with concussions all the time is I couldn't imagine, you know, what the effects of those are later on in life. I I don't know if there's even enough literature or research now to truly define like how that's going to continue to impact the human brain for athletes that play football. What were the days immediately after that hit like for you? You're just foggy. Think of, um, it's that same feeling of you're in a deep sleep and you're trying to wake up and you're trying to, it's not like a bruise or it's not like a break where there's pain, you know, it's um, more so like, how are you functioning your motor skills? How, how fast are you processing things? You got to think that even though sports is highly physical, it's, you're also, um, it's a big mental sport too, where you're thinking about how to make adjustments. You're, watching film you're trying to get any type of advantage that you can get you're trying to um you know think strategically about how you get yourself a competitive advantage none of this has to do with the physical aspect of the game all this is mental 
And when you can't do that, it becomes challenging. But then mentally, because you're reaction, reacting at a fraction of a second, if anything is off, you leave yourself susceptible to get more injuries. Um, and so you're, I think that hit probably – we actually – we played the – the next game I sat out, we had a bye week. I think we went to New Orleans for the next game. Then we had a bye week. And then that next following week is when I came back. So really three full weeks of recovery. What did you feel like when you came back? Um, You feel normal to what you expect normal to be. Um, but once again, as an athlete, you're used to performing with nicks and bruises. And, you're, you know, some days you get good rest. Some days you don't get good rest. Some days you're you know, life is happening, so you're thinking about things. So you're, you're just used to performing no matter what your body feels like. I don't think any athlete after the first game or even going into the first game feels 100%. So you you don't even know all the time, like, on the scale of 1 to 100, 0 to 100, how you're feeling. So I, I couldn't tell you exactly. Last thing about this, do you wonder with that hit and the other concussions, how many documented concussions did you have as an NFL player? Uh, four, I think. Yeah, I think four. Yeah. Do you do you ever are you ever concerned about what your life is going to be like mentally when you're fifty five, sixty years old? Um, it. I'd be lying if I said I didn't. It didn't cross my mind. Um, especially as you see movies like Concussion, or especially as you see. Right, different people that have certain effects. Uh, I try to make sure that from a health standpoint overall that I'm doing everything that I need to do, um, you know, whether it be working out or adequate rest or um, continued education, um, nutrition, sleep, like all, all the things that you can do just to have a healthy lifestyle in general. Um but is it something that I think about on a day to day? No. Um, is it something that I think about limits my ability to function right now? No. But I'm 33. You know, like that's 20 right. something years yeah. from now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with Muhammad Masakwa, Muhammad, a couple other things uh, more down on the line of what you're doing right now. I think. You know, in what I've read, the little bit that I've read and heard about you and obviously talking to you right now, one of the most interesting things is I have come to think, you know, in my life, because I've had some significant change in, in recent years, that change is one of the best things that can happen to a person. Yeah. Far and away, absolutely. Whether you move somewhere, whether you take a different job, whether there are family changes, I kind of think it's fantastic because it makes you sort of re-examine exactly what you're doing in your life, why you're doing it, and whether you want to keep doing it. I I 100% agree. Like when I left the NFL, I was uh, working at a financial firm and one of my good friends, Justin Houston, he's playing for the Colts now. And he, we're sitting there talking and he was like, man, I think you're just comfortable. I, I don't even think that, you know, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And I think a lot of people just get comfortable in life. And then when you're forced to go through a change, you start to like really take a step back, especially if it's like a life altering change. And you say, okay, if I, if that was it, if it would have went south all of that day, would have been happy with the decisions that I was making. And so as you start to reevaluate, you look at risk differently. Like I think there's a difference between risk and danger and Danger, there's really no upside. You might have the, the short thrill, but there's really no upside. But a risk, like you can really change the trajectory of your life for the better, you know, whether that's the risk to be all in and play sports and make it to the NFL or it's the risk to be all in on your media career and now, you know, you get a chance to talk to someone like yourself or it's the risk to, you know, pursue a venture that you know you have the, the capabilities to do. You just need to continue to develop it. And when you're forced to make that change, you become more creative, you become more intentional, you become um, more thoughtful as to how to create this thing or, or, or reach this goal that you have. Um, and it's not even just professional, just in life, whether it's family or, you know, spending time with people or taking care of yourself. And when once you lock into that, the sky almost becomes the, the limit because you're, you're driven by, the, by a different purpose. Here's a, a quick story. 
in 2009, my my wife and I, we, we had had two kids. We were empty nesters. Uh-huh. And we lived in a beautiful home in New Jersey. Uh-huh. Um, our kids were gone. They were both out on the West Coast. And, you know, there were some comfortable things that were keeping us there. You know, I coach girls softball and really like that. But there wasn't anything that was really keeping us there. And so we had discussed for a long time, at some point, we were going to move to a city. And I kept finding excuses why we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And finally, one day, my wife just said to me, she goes, you're, you're never going to move. If we live here a couple more years, we will die in this house. Mm-hmm. And that really was, that was the slap in the face that I needed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I kept saying, okay, why really are we here? Are we here because we want to be here? Or are we here because we're just afraid of what is beyond this? And I think if I had a partner in life who just said to me, yeah, it's okay, we can stay here. I would still be living in that house today. Wow. But, and it's been so great because we've moved three times and I have absolutely no fear of moving anymore. We just moved this past June from uh, Manhattan on the Upper West Side to Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had no idea what to expect, but it's cool. We're just learning new things. It's a new area. Yeah, who knows? We might move again three times before we die. I don't know. Yeah. But I I just think it's cool to be able to experience new things. Yeah, I think we like at some point we we lose we lose that and whether it, we tell ourselves we have too many responsibilities or we tell ourselves that um whatever excuse that we make in life. And it's not until you're challenged or forced that you realize you're going to be safe. There's there most people don't have life altering changes like you know the serious stuff the cancer or death or whatever the case may be other things are just this made up idea of what are all the hindrances that are await versus all the opportunities and i had a a friend um huge real estate and we're talking before huge real estate company we're talking before he launches the, the venture and i'm like you know what do you think and he was like the unknown opportunity excites me more than the future makes me nervous and that's kind of just like how I live life now. It's just like so many opportunities <laughs> to be had. But if you're so scared of what thing may happen or what's going to derail your day or, you know, the downside versus the upside, then you just miss out on the richness of life. Like the the beauty is in the adventure. It's, it's not in the sameness of the little box that you want to keep yourself in. I got to tell you one more story. You'll get a kick out of this. Go for it. So a few years ago, a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine who worked at ESPN, a guy named John Walsh, who was really one of the founders of everything they did journalistically, I was having a conversation with him and I said, how in the world did you guys figure out, pardon the interruption? Mike Wilbon, this, this kind of cool, hip, uh, a black man who is one of the best sports writers in America. Mm-hmm. And then Tony Kornheiser, this old stay in your lane kind of irascible white guy who's also one of the best sports writers in America. I said, how did you figure that that would work? And he goes, we, we didn't, we didn't know. <laughs> he said, but at that time at ESPN, every year we would do eight, 10, 12 projects we'd be budgeted that we would do all these projects. And we always thought, hey, if one of these things works every year, it's worth it. And we do some crazy things. We put some crazy things on the air. Sometimes things didn't even make the air. But we tried all these different things and just think, pardon the interruption, was born just simply out of imagination. And now it's really kind of a part of the sports broadcasting landscape. And it only happened because ESPN chose to to try different things. They had the money to do so, which is good, but they tried something different. And let's say nine of the things they tried that year didn't work, but one of them was a grand slam. That's life though. Like no there I don't think there's any expert that can predict everything that's going to be successful. Like everyone has to try. Everybody's still trying to figure out, especially in the way that the world is going, it's becoming more competitive than ever. There's so many different things. Everybody's fighting for the same space. And if you do the same thing that everyone else is doing, then you just become lost in the shuffle of everybody else. But if you're willing to take a step back and say, okay, 
I'm going to try this. It's going to push me outside of my comfort zone. Even if it doesn't work, I'm going to learn something and I'm going to have a different experience than the other person that's just doing the same thing that the other group of people is doing. And as I continue to move through life, I'm going to be able to connect these different experiences because I've allowed myself to branch out. And then once I find an opportunity that I know I'm uniquely qualified for, once all that comes together, it's going to be great. And if you look at Tony, if you look at Michael, if you look at yourself, you have certain experiences that separate you from your competition that's been doing the same thing because you've been willing to step outside of your comfort zone. And people, I think, sometimes look short term. It's like everybody wants to win now. Everyone wants the overnight success now. But if you look at the people that are really doing it at the high level, they have so much of just time that they've put into developing their craft over and over and over and over again. And they're pulling from so many different places that when they do approach a problem, it's not just one way to approach it. They've thought through a thousand different things. And then the result becomes this beautiful masterpiece, not because they're just so gifted. It's because that they've tried so many different things, some losses, some wins, and they just understand that scenario a lot differently than other people. And you have to push yourself outside of your comfort zone so that you're not just this, this dated stagnant idea that nobody really wants anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to end with this. Where'd you get your approach to life? Life, <laughs> paying attention, um, family. Um, like I said, I'm, uh, I'm just very appreciative of life in general. Like the fact that I was born here in America, the fact that my parents fled a civil war in Liberia, country three million people, you lose 600,000, 20% of the country dies. Um, the fact that I get a chance to, you know, wake up every day, the fact that, um, you know, you get a chance to go to University of Georgia, you get a chance to play in the NFL, you, you just see how other people live life and you travel, you experience other cultures, you have conversations with people that you're you're open to that, that have different opinions on you. And that openness, like it, it frees you just to explore life. It frees you to embrace life. And then understanding that challenges are just a part of life and that you're going to get through them. You, you, you don't live life in fear. You, you, you live life for what it is, this rich experience that you have a finite time in and you got to maximize it while you're here. It's been real delight talking to you. I really appreciate it. I had no idea where this conversation would go, but it went in a fun place. So thanks, Muhammad. Thank you. I wish you the best and uh, keep on moving. And now our five minutes with a writer segment with Jenny Vrentis of Sports Illustrated. I spent about an hour on Monday of this week uh, reading and experiencing the content at Sports Illustrated about Megan Rapino, who is Sports Illustrated's 2019 Sports Person of the Year. Only the fourth uh, woman to win this August award, uh, standing on her own, not being accompanied by others in that, in that year. Um, and I really love the choice and I love the story, as, as I thought when I finished the story, really the greatest stories, the greatest profiles of uh, sort of iconic people, meaningful people, are the stories that you finish reading and you say, boy, I really feel like I know that person. And I think Megan Rapino is so layered and so different and so interesting that it's going to take a while and a lot of words for you really to understand her. But I thought Jenny's story was so good that I wanted to have her on today to talk about the story and to talk about Megan Rapino herself. So Jenny, thank you. And congrats on a great, great story. Well, thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Okay. So many people will wonder how is the sportsman or sports person of the year chosen? Yeah, it's a good question. I had never really been involved with the process uh, until this year. And I think I had written about Megan in the lead up to the World Cup. And because of that, had been talking with our editor-in-chief at the, to uh, the time, Chris Stone, about the World Cup that she was having and just the way that she sees the moment. I mean, I think once they beat the Netherlands and Megan had been 
she won the golden boot and the golden ball for the top scorer and the MVP of the tournament. I, I think the choice was really obvious at that point. Generally, they like to wait until maybe after Labor Day because the sports here is long and a lot of things could happen. But in this case with Megan, when have we seen an athlete seize a moment so fully like she did? It wasn't just the penalty kicks that she did under extreme pressure, which is one of the toughest things to do in sports, but also the way that she performed under the scrutiny of this is a team that was suing their employer for equal pay. Uh, she'd been questioned publicly by the president of the United States. She had a hamstring injury that caused her to miss the semifinal. So all of these factors under which she performed, and she just owned the stage so beautifully, and she wasn't afraid throughout the tournament to keep speaking up for the things that she believed in. I think for a lot of people, she just represented this moment in time when we're restless and we're all trying to figure out what more we can do to shape the direction of our country and, and shape who we are, you know, and try to contribute more. And I think Megan just represented so many of those things so beautifully um, that it really was an easy pick this year. There are going to be people who remember Megan Rapino before the World Cup began saying basically if we win I am not going to the bleeping White House and so there will be a third of the population in America and maybe a lot more than that who will say all right uh, enough with Megan Rapino. I've got no use for her. Uh, she's no hero to me why should people care about the Megan Rapino story I definitely saw some of those reactions on Twitter when the story came out, people questioning the pick. But the common thread to all of them was that they hadn't read the story and they probably hadn't read other stories about Megan. And I don't think they had a clear sense of exactly who she was and what she represented. I think you see that she comes from a family where there's a lot of, you know, different parts to her story. She's from a part of the country where you know, it's, it's a conservative area of California, and her father voted for Trump, and she's very layered. She has, she can appreciate and understand a lot of different perspectives, and I think that really is what makes her unique. And I think people who kind of judge where she's coming from and think that she doesn't, um, that they can't, she doesn't represent something that they also want to be a part of, don't understand that her story is really one of empathy and that she takes into account all of these other perspectives. And I think She's, uh, rather than being a divisive figure, which she sometimes painted as, I really think she's a unifying one. I think she wants people to be able to express themselves, and she wants to represent points of view that aren't the majority. And I think she stands for so many of those things that uh, people who don't have a voice, she wants to try to help them amplify their voice. You know, the one thing in this story, there are so many great aspects of this story, but you got down in the weeds in this story so significantly in a very, very good way. And I want you, if you can, to tell people about your trip to her hometown, including a trip to Jack's Grill in Redding, California. What is Jack's Grill? Who is Denise Rapino, and why does this matter? Yeah, so I went to Redding, California, which is about two and a half hours north of Sacramento. Her mom has been a waitress at Jack's Grill since Megan and her twin sister, Rachel, were 22 months old. So Denise would work nights, and Jim, her husband, would work days as a contractor. Basically, that's how they, they had, they were raising a total of seven kids eventually, and they balanced it out this way. It was truly an equal partnership. You know, one person was home half of the day. The other person was home the other half. They split everything up. And, you know, at Jack's Grill, after Megan kind of stormed onto the national scene or the world stage, I guess, she had that 2011 World Cup where she had that perfect left-footed cross to Abby Wambach, um, 2012 Olympics where they won the gold. One of the bartenders had hung up some of Megan's photos both behind the bar and also – um, on a wall between paintings, there was even a spotlight on it because the restaurant is so dark. And after Megan knelt in support of Colin Kaepernick to protest police brutality and systemic racism in our country, there were enough calls to the restaurant that the owner of the restaurant at the time decided it was bad for business to have photos of Megan. 
Um, and there was also support on the other hand, but he felt that there were enough detractors that he took those photos down. So Denise came into work one day and the bartender who had hung up the photos told her that the owner had decided to take them down. And, you know, obviously it was hurtful to Denise, but she said, you know what, you know, Megan has the right to, to protest and to stand up in the way that she thinks is most impactful. Same time, the owner of the restaurant, it's his restaurant, it's his business, you know, so that's his decision. And she, she still kept working there, but it is kind of, it's kind of crazy because, you know, her daughter has since then become this American icon. And it really wasn't until this world cup that she took that leap to that next level of somebody that is just recognized worldwide as this, this incredible figure of impact. And in the restaurant where her mother works, like her daughter's photos are not even featured. I I guess I would close and just ask you one thing about the story and sort of about the moral of the story. I think the biggest thing that I felt after reading this, not just about Megan Rapino, but about people in general and why your story is so interesting, so layered, and Megan Rapino is such a mosaic of a person. Um, I think we all really struggle, and we all make mistakes when we don't consider a full person. Uh, you know, and sometimes I find myself wondering, well, geez, why did this guy do this? What is the motivation behind him doing this? Who is he? And sometimes it just makes me pause instead of just lashing out. Uh, it makes me pause and just say, there's probably a lot to this story that I don't know. And I think that's one of the things that you were able to accomplish with Megan Rapino. No matter what you feel about her politics, no matter what you feel about her hair color, no matter, obviously she's openly gay, no matter whatever you feel about her as a person, you just have to admire the fact that she is a, uh, a mosaic of a person and there is not just one or two aspects of her that, okay, that's it, now I know her. You've got to know 8, 10, 12 aspects of Megan Rapino to truly know her. Yeah, I think that's really well said, Peter, and I think this is her power, is that she wants everybody to see that, right? She doesn't want to be fit into a perfect box. She knows that life is good, but it's also bad. It's messy. Um, her story, she wants to reflect all of that. I think about all of the topics that we covered in our conversation, and going into this, you know, I, I didn't know her well, but she shared about, you know, her brother's dependency issues. She talked about the political divide in her family and kind of working through that. She talked about coming out to her parents and considering it from their perspective. Um, so for her, she wants everyone to see all of these different layers because I think everyone can relate to her with on some level. It might not be on every level, but I think there's a commonality that we, we all share as humans. And I think by opening up herself and wanting you to see all of the things that she has uh, that make her who she is, even her doubts. I mean, I, that was one thing that really surprised me is that she comes across as this confident woman who doesn't care what you think. And that's true on some level, but it's also, she's also wrapped with doubt. You know, she is allowed to be, you know, championed on the world stage and Colin Kaepernick who inspired you know, some of her social justice stands uh, is without a job. And uh, am I doing enough with this platform? She asks herself all the time. Just feel like there's a humanity that we can all relate to that. We're not all perfect. Megan is not all perfect. She is this icon in society and she still questions herself. She still has doubts. She has a, a imperfect story. Um, and I think that is really what her power is because she reminds us all that we can do something even if you're not perfect, even if you don't have all the answers, even if you have flaws. The the cool part of this story, I thought, of many things um, is that you really made people anticipate, early on in the story, you made people anticipate what was to come with these two sentences. She owned the biggest moment of her life and silenced all the doubts except perhaps her own. And that was a great harbinger of things to come in the story. And Jenny, I really, really appreciate you joining me. Great job on the story. 
Uh, I hope it is well-received, and I hope whether it changes your opinion of Megan Rapino, I hope that people will at least read this because it will educate them about who Megan Rapino the person is. Thanks so much for having me, Peter. I really appreciate the chance to talk about it. She's a, she's an amazing woman, and she she speaks up for so many different things, and uh, I really appreciate you having a conversation about her. You know, back in the summer, when I was on my training camp tour, I'd always wanted to stop in and see a guy who, you know, being a Red Sox fan, I always had a lot of admiration for, Kevin Euclid. And he runs, uh, he owns and operates a brewery in Los Gatos, California, which is not far from where the 49ers train and have their stadium uh, in Santa Clara. So I stopped in after watching the 49ers at practice one day, and we had a really cool visit. Here's my conversation with Kevin Euclid. We're sitting in Kevin Euclid's new life. For those uh, who basically expect to be an all-football podcast, um, occasionally I dip into other interesting topics, and we're so happy that uh, Kevin Euclid the longtime major leaguer who now uh, is turning his attention to being uh, not the Greek god of walks, but the Greek god of hops in a brewery in Los Gatos, California. Uh, and, and Kevin, the Loma Brewing Company, where we're sitting right now, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And I just want you to, say, to, to talk for a minute about how you went from walking away in baseball to building this kind of shrine to craft beer? <laughs> well, you know, I walked away from baseball in 2014. Uh, the body just was, was it, it, became a, it became a full-on job, trying to keep the body healthy and uh, trying to keep the mental. It was more mental, I think, than anything. And uh, so I knew it was over, and in my, in my mind, I was ready to move on. I had my third child, and, and life was uh, looking, and, and, you know, baseball was in the rearview mirror at, at, at the major league level. You know, I, I still play with my boys all the time and have a lot of fun and still love the game and work with the Cubs, but I just want to do something different and I want to challenge myself in life. And uh, I definitely did uh, definitely did challenge myself by opening uh, Loma Brewing Company and it's been three years next week. Uh, wow. We've been open, so uh, it's just an amazing feat to stay open for three years in this business. And I just uh, want to do something uh, with my life and, and create something from the ground up and and Basically, the, the, the greatest thing about this is hiring and meeting new people. I think that's probably one of the most joys I have out of this is getting to know the business from many different angles, but just the people and giving people jobs and, and providing for a town and having fun with that. Um, Kevin, when you think of what it took to be great at baseball, long hours, um, you know, going back to your days growing up in Cincinnati, and... You, you had to absolutely love it. Tell me, how do you succeed in this business where it strikes me that this is, this is an extremely competitive business, the craft beer business. It's fantastic. I love it. But how do you win in this game? I think it's like everything in life. You surround yourself with good people. Uh, it all starts with hiring good people and that have a vision and have a goal. And we have a really strong core group that is in this for the long haul. They want to really build uh, Loma into something special. And uh, my general manager and my partner in this, uh, Dan and I were uh, roommates in college and wow. played uh, baseball at University of Cincinnati together. And he's been around in uh, the country doing uh, the restaurant industry. So he has a very good sense of that. But together, we're, he doesn't know, you know we, we had to learn the brewing world together. So... Uh, I think that's, but it was a, it was kind of a passion of yours late in your yeah. late in your career, right? I love that, yeah, because I really enjoy craft beer. I really got in, into understanding it and, and learning it and and finding my niche of what I liked in beer and try. I always try beer. Uh, I'm not a sours guy, but yeah, you know, we go around and Dan's always either. like, Dan's <laughs> always like, you gotta try it. And I'm like, all right, the rule of thumb is I'll always try it. And I always go, damn, I don't like this beer, but I'll always try it. So I learned from my mom, I guess, like you always try, you know, something new. And, you know, that's, that's part of a, it's the challenge. Everything, you know, what I'm learning as I get older too, it's like, you need to challenge yourself. And when you challenge yourself in life, you grow. And 
there's a lot of headaches and a lot of uh, heart, you know, heartache along the way because it is extremely difficult at times mentally uh, to, to, to try to keep learning and understanding it. And you know, there's some days you're like, I think we got it. And then there's other days you're like taking a step back. So it's no different than baseball when you go 0 for 12, you're in a little slump, yeah. got to keep swinging. So yeah. uh, just like in this, we just keep grinding away and just enjoy it. I mean, at least we got a good product to, you know, like to, to enjoy at the end of the night if we've had a bad day. Well. I have to say, you have given me, uh, we should talk about this beer that I'm drinking right now, Bao Tabochi. Okay, so you being a big baseball guy, obviously, you, you love all things baseball. This is the last year of Bruce Bochi managing the San Francisco Giants. He'll walk into the Hall of Fame one day, and you have a, a beer that's a tribute to him. Tell me about Bao Tabochi. Yeah, so we're here. I mean, we're in Giants country here. Uh, there's a lot, you know, there's A's fans that come in here too. So, but we are in Giants country and a lot of huge fans of the San Francisco Giants. So part of it was to the to our patrons that are big Giants fans, but it mostly it's to a, a, a legend in the baseball. I mean, in many, many different ways. If you know Bruce Bochy, uh, he's a legend. Uh, he's just a great guy. And I've never heard anything bad from players that play from him. They love him. And I felt like this is just something that we have to do. We, we, we have a hard enough time naming names of like beers because everyone has these, you know, names. Bizarre and it's names. And it's, it's so hard to name a beer. But I was like, you know what? This guy has given so much to the Bay Area. And we're, we're trying to be a big part of the Bay Area moving forward. And it's just, a, it's just the easiest fit possible to name a beer after him in his, in his last hurrah. And it's my daughter who is here today. She is a huge hazy IPA fan. And I said, hey, have you had Bauta Bochi? And she said, it's fantastic. Oh, great. So she is a nutty, hazy IPA person. You look in her fridge at home, there's probably 14 hazy IPAs. <laughs> well, you know, and she, she said, your beer is great. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah. you, know, be, you know, the Northeast, I just got back from Boston, and I, I swear, like, every beer out there is a hazy right, beer in some yeah. way. Um, have, you ever, have you ever taken a drive up through Vermont? Yeah, and and gone and and found like Heady Topper and all of these these crazy beers that are like have cult followings. Yeah, we were just in uh, up there uh, last year for my brother-in-law's uh, 40th birthday. Mm-hmm. Uh, him and his friends had this big party and like all their families were together and uh, he uh, you know we were right we were right next to the Alchemist, so we went wow. over to Heady Topper and That's you know had some good. of those and uh, went to another beer bar and I was like oh my god like I looked at the menu is like. All these double IPAs, and I'm like, oh my god! These you know people this love restaurant. You know this restaurant right near Fenway now called Eastern Standard. I was just there last night. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, Eastern Standard. About four or five years ago, I went in there, and the guy knew who I was, and he said, "Hey, I got to give you a beer to try." Was it and Gary? He gave me a, I, I don't remember. Gray the hair. Guys. Yes. Yeah, that's the owner. Okay, all right. Garrett's great. He's he a big said, beer guy. He said, "I got to give you a beer to try," and he brought over this big silver can, and he said, "Drink it right out of the can." And I looked at it, it had that weird logo on it, the Heady Topper logo, yeah. and I said, this is gold. So he brought over this guy in the restaurant, and he goes, this is the guy who's assigned to drive three hours. To pick it up. Every week, and we can only get four cases. So he goes wow. up to get four cases of this beer, and he drives back. And so, you know, you're thinking to yourself, wow, that's 96 beers that that guy is going to the middle of Vermont to go get. Is, and, and so, I mean, it was costly, but yeah. I said, you know, it's, it's worth it. This is pretty good. Yeah, they got they, they've, I think it's the top five on the beer list uh, yeah. with, like, you know, Pliny and um, Pliny the two Elder. Hard, yeah, yeah. Two-Hearted Ale. Pliny the Elder, to me, it kind of tastes like a pine tree. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't that it? West, it's got it's that, that re- West Coast hoppy beers. Yeah. You know, it's uh, if you don't like the hop hops, there's some beers out here that will hit people the wrong way, and I yeah. think that's why people love the hazy because it's kind of in that middle ground and yeah. it's, it's more approachable. Um, and I always joke around. I said the only problem though is like when you keep having all these hazies, a lot of them taste the same, and so like yeah, I can't decipher true. which brewery that it's from and stuff like that. So we like to have both. We like to have the West Coast IPA with our appeasement mixed with hazies because. 
you know, there's so many different variations of IPAs now. Uh, some are yeah. more maltier, and you know, for me, I like the West Coast. I like the fruitier and some yeah. of the piney ones. And but that's the greatest thing about having a, a brew pub is we can just keep producing small batches. Right. Uh, we don't have to throw it out into cans and production. And you know, a lot of breweries they have to put it on the shelves and it has to sell. So we get to play around with it and have a lot of fun with it. I want to ask you one baseball question and then a couple of football questions. So when you were getting ready to leave baseball, was it, was it really difficult to say goodbye to this game that you've played since you could walk, basically? Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was very tough because it was my life for so long. And once you start playing in pro ball, you have a regiment. Every single day you know you're going to the ball field, and then every once in a while you get that off day. Um, but you have a set schedule for your life for a whole year. And you gotta and you gotta work out in the off season and you got and you know the timing of everything. Then all of a sudden it's gone. Oh wait, I don't have to train for anything? I don't, <laughs> I don't have to go to the gym right now. It's 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 January it's in January and I'm not playing, you know, and so that's the hard part of it. And a lot of it too is your identity. Your identity is known as baseball and yeah. people only identify you as a baseball player. Uh, so the struggle is in your first year. When you retire, your first year is a tough year. And you know, what'd you do in your first year out? Uh, I was looking into opening a brewery. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> so I went around and did all that, and you know, I was just home a lot, yeah. home a lot, and doing this. And I try to work out a little bit here and there, and, and try to stay in shape, and and do all the little things I had to do to to maintain not gaining three hundred, you know, to get to three hundred yeah. pounds. But. Uh, you know, I, I just I really enjoy my time with my kids, and uh, you know, at how many that kids point, do you have? I have three. Wow, how so, old are they? Uh, soon to be five, soon to be seven, and a thirteen-year-old. Oh my gosh! Yeah, so my wow. daughter's how thirteen, and my two boys are the yeah. the younger ones. So when I retired, my youngest one was he was just born um, at that point too. So yeah. I had my hands full, and uh, so that was easy on that end. But you know, it's tough. But the did, fraternity, do they do they know? All right, so I'm a weird, sick Red Sox fan. Do they know? Like, does your daughter know really how much people in New England loved you? <laughs> I mean, and and had this. There was a while where people really had a thing for you. You were as great as you know Ortiz and Manny and all those people. I mean, they loved Kevin Euclid. Well, I think you know when I go back and last year when I got inducted in the Red Sox Hall of Fame, they they got a better sense like yeah. being on the field and when they hear the Uke chants. Yeah. They they. They kind of get it and understand it. My boys are still so young, and yeah. uh, my daughter gets it though. She, you know, she, you know, we every time we, I mean, every time we go back, uh, you know, for the Patriot games, and stuff it's like got to be a people, little bit intimidating for her, right, to be able to see she her father it. being worshipped. Yeah, no? she loves it. She, yeah. she's amazing. She, she's like on stage. She could act, and she <laughs> loves all that. Does dance, and she, she is not shy of the stage. So yeah. she is great with it. You know, my boys might be a little bit, like, taken back, especially my middle one. He's a lot like me and doesn't – not a big spotlight guy. I, yeah. I, you know, I didn't really enjoy the spotlight. I just loved baseball. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that's part of it when I go back is I've gotten better. So I've gotten better yeah. opening up. I used to be – I joke well, yeah, around. Yeah, look at you. You're, 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 you're wonderful now, you know. <laughs> yeah. Really. I'm serious. And, I, you know, when I was playing, I just, I just wanted to – I didn't want to be judged. I, you know, yeah. I was already being judged by my, my bosses, right? Yeah. So I didn't need to be judged. And I was always, I always held myself really accountable. You know, I, you know, people are like, oh, why were you so angry? I was like, because I was mad at myself. You know, I was mad because I knew how to, you know, I, I should have done this on that pitch, or I should have laid off this pitch. And I was more mad at myself. Yeah. And that was just my intensity was, you know, mad because every time I got up to bat, I thought I could get a hit. Yeah. And that was the mindset I had to have in order to have success. Yeah. You know, Pete Rose has been the same way. And he was my idol growing up. So yeah. I blame Pete. So when I <laughs> see Pete, I blame him for being angry. He's but. got a lot of blame in life. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but he taught me a lot about the game. Growing yeah. up watching him and every kid that grew up Did you get to know Pete? I've met him a few times. Yeah. Uh, my, dad's, my dad's probably talked to him more than I have. Yeah. So that's like his special treat is my dad has that in with Pete. You yeah. Know, the whole baseball connection. Yeah. Uh, with Kevin Euclid's, uh Loma Brewing Company in Los Gatos, California. Um, Kevin, I want to just talk for a couple of minutes about your relationship with Tom Brady. And, you know, he's your brother-in-law. And I just wonder, over the years, when you've known him, what have you learned about him 
and what do you think you've learned that has sort of helped you maybe as a competitor and uh, as a person, even if it's in business? Well, I think the big thing with Tommy is just his work ethic and his passion for his craft. And you realize that, you know, together we, we talk about stuff and we understand that, you know, we, you know, we talk about baseball or football or anything like that. It's just what it takes to be on the top. When you want to be on the top of professional sports, you got to be married to the game. And Tommy is fully committed and married to that game. And that's what you have to be. And our attitudes of we weren't, you know, so Tommy went to Michigan, which is a, you know, a great feat, you yeah. know, but he had a tough road. You know, he didn't get to play and all that. Which so, I think is a big reason of what happened to him. Yeah. That so he wasn't handed him anything. He wasn't Drew Henson. No. You know, yeah. And I knew Drew. Uh, when, when I, so when I was with the Yankees, I, I was rehabbing and Drew was down and we, we talked a lot about the yeah. whole, you know, time at Michigan. And Drew's a great guy. Yeah. Really yeah. nice guy. And so yeah. it was really cool. Like, so, you know, you know, having Tommy there and then hearing Drew's side of the story too. So I got to hear both sides of the story on this whole issue, but it was a tough road. And I think uh, Sean Casey said it best, one of my buddies, he, he had a thing about collecting chips. You know, Sean Casey, same way. He, he was, you know, overlooked, went to Richmond. Um, it's the guys that collect the chips. You collect your chips, you put them in your back pocket and you just keep collecting chips. The people are telling you, you can't do this, you can't do that. And those are the guys who are like, well, they weren't as talented as all these other players and how they get there. It's because they had that attitude. They had that want and desire. And, yes, they had, they, every person that makes it to the top of their sport had a talent at some point. They're probably the best player locally, you know, growing up. But along the way, it's just learning and having the uh, capacity to keep increasing your knowledge of the game and wanting more. And I think that's what Tommy, he, he doesn't want to stop. He wants to keep learning. He wants more. He wants perfection. And I think that's what we share is I was a perfectionist, he's a perfectionist, and it, it's amazing what he does. I mean, he really, really does not take a break. He's always, he's always thinking about it, always doing something. I mean, we go on vacation, and he's doing something that he has to train and go for a couple hours, then he comes back. So it's, a, it's, it's very admirable to watch. I went to see him in uh, Montana oh, after, yeah, <laughs> after the Super Bowl uh, where he made the comeback to beat Atlanta. And he's sort of showing me his, his property. We taped a long interview. And he's showing me his property. And he's got to have something in the middle of his property where the receivers can come and he can throw to them. You know, because without that, he doesn't really want to be there for very long. He needs to be able to incorporate that into his life. And when I heard that, when he was talking about that, it was interesting about just about his dedication to his craft. Yeah, it was funny. Uh, in 2000 and, yeah, it was it 2013? So when I, I was with New York, uh, the Yankee, and I, my, I had a herniated disc. L4, L5, drop foot, it was bad. So we're, we're down in uh, Anaheim. So I flew down from here. It was in Oakland. I played 17 in a game. Go drive to the airport in the morning to go to catch a flight. I'm driving the car, my foot's numb. I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel right. So I call, I text my trainer, blah, blah, blah. He's like, all right, we'll get, you, we'll get you in to see a doctor down here. So I go see the doctor and uh, Marina Del Rey. Doctor does all the tests. He's like, it's not good. <laughs> He's like, you're going to need surgery this week. Wow. Luckily, Tommy had his house in L.A., not too far away. So I know I have to get surgery like in two days or whatever. Stay at his house. My wife's, my wife's down there too. She comes and because uh, I have to get the surgery. So they come down. So Tommy's like, hey, you want to go out and catch the passes? So we're in the driveway, and he's, like, launching, like, balls at me. And I'm, like, and I'm just catching him. He's like, man, he's like, you got good hands. <laughs> he's like, I could use you. I'm like, I don't think you could use me. I was like, I'm a six-foot, you know, I'm not going to get open. He's like, don't worry. He's like, you can catch the ball, though. So that was always a joke is, like, I've caught passes from him. And, but those gloves, I was joking about those gloves that they have. I'm like, these are great. I was like, yeah. you know, if we had these as baseball gloves, we could use these, whatever this material is. Yeah, it stops glove, the ball in their tracks. Yeah, we never made it yeah. there at third base. Yeah. I've always thought there should be an asterisk on the Odell Beckham Jr. catch. Yeah. Because if you watch the catch, that glove helped him. Those I don't care what anybody says. Those gloves are amazing. <laughs> yeah. So whoever came up with that, whoever invented those gloves – I mean, they, I mean, that's going to go down as the, yeah. like, the best invention in, in uh, wide receiver history. We'll end with this. So do you have a gut feeling right now as you sit here? How long do you think Tom Brady plays football? Yeah, you know, for me, I, 
you know, I hear stuff. I, you know, I, the funny thing is I don't read anything. Yeah. I, you know, everyone always talks and like, hey, do you, read, you know, people send me story. I'm like, don't send it to me. I don't care. If I, <laughs> if I have a question, I can just go text them, you know. <laughs> um, and I just don't read it. I don't, you yeah. know, because when he's ready, we'll all know. Yeah. Kevin Euclid of Loma Brewing Company. No longer Kevin Euclid of the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Euclid of Loma Brewing Company. Thanks so much for, for hosting us, for letting us taste your beer and for giving us a peek into your new life. Oh, thanks, yeah. This is great, and anytime you want to come back, door's always open for you. My thanks to Mohamed Masakwa, Jenny Varentis, and Kevin Euclid for an odd pod. This is an unusual podcast. Try to get a little bit back to the football world next week. I really appreciate you guys listening and taking a little bit different tack this week on the podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you.